Welcome to To The Point Cybersecurity Podcast. Each week, join Eric Trexler and Rachel Lyon to explore the latest in global cybersecurity news, trending topics, and industry transformation initiatives impacting governments, enterprises, and our way of life. Now, let's get to the point. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of To The Point Podcast. I'm Rachel Lyon, and I'm here again with my co-host, Eric Trexler. Eric, I feel like I almost need like a drum to introduce you now. What do you think? Do we need more more sound effect? Well, I was going to say you almost sounded sedated there, like you were in this place of peace before passing into a new new land or something. You were like transitioning into uh, you know a new part of your life there. I, I don't know. Exactly. You were very passionate. And then you start the drumming. I was changing it up today a little bit. I was trying to okay. change it up, change it up a little, you know? Okay. I guess Welcome back. Happy like Monday. Yeah. <laughs> Indeed. I went to the grocery store hungry. Can I tell you this real quick? Over the weekend, uh-huh. I bought $30 worth of Easter candy. Why? Why? I got like a bag of those dum-dums. $30. There's like 300 dum-dum suckers. So luckily I have family friends who came over and took it off my hands. But oh, the dum-dums, just, which you get at the dental off. Uh, the, uh, exactly, which the, is the irony. Why does the dentist yeah. hand out dum-dums? But the well, they give you a toothbrush Maybe better with customers. Too. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you ready to back. get into this? You're I ready am. To this? I'm so I excited. am. I've, I've never been so excited. I don't think I've ever been so excited to talk to a lawyer. Let me think about that. <laughs> I don't think so. I'm usually on the other side of that. But le- who do we have today? Well, we have uh, Bobby Chesney's joining us today. He holds the James Baker Chair at the University of Texas School of Law. And I also want to mention he's the co-founder of Lawfare Blog, and he co-hosts the National Security Law Podcast. So we are going to have an amazing conversation today. Welcome, Bobby. Thank you so much. I'm super excited to be with you guys. This is I uh, want candy, by the way. Right? Oh, well. I know. Well, just give me your address and I'll, I'll shoot it over. I got <laughs> so much candy. And they didn't have Rachel, the one I wanted. Do you still have your place in Austin or you got rid of that? Oh, no. Austin place has gone on. Yes. Yeah. I'm just, I'm 100% in Houston with the Peacocks now. I was, I was telling but Bobby, Bobby about we that do, excitement. we are headquartered in Austin. So Rachel can yes. hand deliver next time she's in the area. I, I I've been to out UT there. Austin. I've been out at Force Point. It's a great spot. Um, yes. Hey, anyone who's got Austin property, hold on to it. <laughs> What did, what did we do to have you come out to headquarters? Like, were we in I, trouble? I think I came out there when we were building our University of Texas cybersecurity education program. Wow. I came out to talk to folks out there. I think I was trying to just, you know, shill for my students, trying to get them jobs, something like that. Oh, we can help with that. We're we always ready to I help. Absolutely help. help you with that. I thought we were in trouble and you were giving us legal advice or something. <laughs> it was not legal advice. <laughs> normally the case. That's normally the case. Oh, it's wonderful. Well, where to start? I mean, it's why don't we start with Ukraine, right, Bobby? Because it's it's Great. everywhere, um, and still continuing, still continuing. Um, and I was I was reading some you know some articles, some KXAN articles, which uh, they they like to interview a lot. It looks like, and uh, you know, one of the things that's come up a lot on the podcast is you know why aren't we seeing more of you know the kind of cyber attacks that we would have expected? And and you had a you know really great perspective there on terms of kind of the the physical elements of of conflict versus the cyber conflicts. And I'd love for you to kind of talk a little bit more about that. Sure. So a lot of people expected that when the ball dropped over there, that we'd see both a uh, visible amount of combat related cyber activity, which let me just pause on that and say that it was 
probably not realistic to think that insofar as a lot of things were going on with direct combat application, that it would be visible to the outside. Right. Um, but more to the point, a lot of people expected there'd be a lot of spillover impacting systems right. um, elsewhere, uh, presumably Europe and the United States. And and famously, we we haven't seen visible outward signs of this. And so there's been a whole discourse about why is that? Why it, is, is this deterrence? Is deterrence working? Was there less capability than we thought? Right. Um, are we just not seeing it? Some people right. said, well, you, know, you don't know what you don't know. Right. Um, I think it's, it's only fair to sort of note that DOD through Cyber Command has been building and expanding its capabilities to defend forward precisely in order to see possible activity of that kind coming towards systems that we need to protect and, if possible, disrupt them. I'm not saying that mm-hmm. it has or hasn't happened, but it's one possible part of the story is that maybe we've been effective at doing the sorts of things we said we were going to try to do. Um, but I think probably the bigger part of the explanation is that um, it's it's a complex game of, of back and forth with some amount of things the West, I'll, I'll just call it the West, though it's more in the West, that we're doing that greatly frustrates the Russians, no doubt, and they are trying to calibrate their response back to us. But there's more that we could do, and it clearly would not be cost-free, and therefore it would not necessarily be wise for the Russians to escalate things by seeking uh, practical uh, disruptive effects on, Mm -hmm. say, uh, one or more sectors of our economy. There's no question that this would be dramatically escalatory, and that there's all sorts of things we're not yet doing that could cause them further problems. And and so um, I think probably the best answer is a, a degree of deterrence and also just a lack of interest on the part of the Russians in taking that further step. It's not obvious what that would get them. It, it, it would be unrealistic for them to think that by going after, say, our financial sector, that somehow that would cause us to back down on sanctions as opposed to enhancing the extent to which uh, we're aiding the Ukrainians. Right. So I, I think it's a big part of it as well. I think that's the that that deterrence piece is the component. I, I can't understand why they haven't done much of anything other than that, right? That that hey, it's already bad enough on the sanctions. We, we would be we would make it worse. You know, I just for me, Bobby, it's you would have expected them to do it. It's almost like we're forecasting. We expect them to do it with CIS's shields up and all the notifications we've put out there without any mm-hmm. any kind of. Uh, threats or promises of, of retaliation, specific anyway. I, I think you're right on that. I mean, I, I just don't get it. Well, if you think it helps too to think about what else might we be doing. So famously, uh, we sort of, <laughs> we got anxious when when the, the, the Poles were going to transfer aircraft to the Ukrainians and we were, we, the idea was we would backfill to them. That seemed to cause us to uh, have a bit of a bit of a, a hesitation, shall we say? There, there are air defense systems, there are weapons systems, there are forms of support that we've not yet provided. There's a lot of debate out there about what, both in the United States and and you hear this in France as well. Why aren't we taking certain steps? Sometimes mm-hmm. people couch it in legal language, like is it does if we go one step further with the types of weapons we're providing or the types of intelligence we're providing, does it make us a co belligerent? Maybe that's causing friction in some places. I think it's more the calculus of, of escalation. Mm-hmm. And, and you might say we seem to have reached almost from the beginning an equilibrium point. There were certain weapons that were being provided and there were certain uh, pressures being provided. 
if if the Russians were to take a disruptive step, it would cause us to be much more generous in what we're doing, I'm sure. And, and conversely, if we were to take a step putting in place, let, let's say we started just directly providing uh, fighter aircraft to the Ukrainians, something that the Russians themselves have identified as a red line and presumably conveyed as a red line, then what, what's the coercion behind that? The coercion is, okay, at that point, we will start to use disruptive cyber means and you'll try to fend it off, but it's going to cost you. So again, I think we've reached uh, something of an equilibrium. What's fascinating about all of it, and, and this goes to the broader question of how is it that the Russians are, are proving to be so ineffective? Uh, what's fascinating is that they're kind of getting their head handed to them. And, and part of that is the support that's flowing from the West. And I, the Russians seem to have not been prepared for that degree of solidarity, to borrow a phrase, on the part of the West. Well, we, we've seen it in Syria. We've seen it in, in, in Serbia. I mean, you've seen it in Georgia, I mean, everywhere, right, where the West did not join together, come together as, as well as the West did here. That's right. Which, that's right. So, and, and so then to turn to go back to the, the cyber piece of it, um, there's just a vast amount of activity surely taking place across all the allies, across NATO and others, all directed towards understanding what the Russians might be trying to do or might be positioned to do in cyberspace and to defang that and to spot it coming. And I think we're probably seeing a lot of benefit from that. Would not argue with that. So another thing that we haven't talked about in a while or this aspect of it, but since we have a lawyer on the podcast, Eric, I want to raise it, raise it up. Um, you know, there's been a lot of calls for illegal activity, if you will, on the hacking front, uh, you know, call for the volunteer, the hacking army and, and vice versa. I mean, is I mean, historically, we know, right, there's there's not a lot of um, repercussions for said activities in, in certain countries, but. Um, it means there going to be any fallout from that. And, you know, I joined the volunteer hacking army to, to help the Ukraine. Am I good to go or should I be worried later? <laughs> no content on this podcast. Shall count as legal advice in the state. Of da, 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 da. So oh, that's my line. Or advice in general. <laughs> advice in general. Don't count it. You're the four point lawyers. Come on. Um, so, look, the, you, see, you see the uh, loose grip Let's back up, right? So the, the, the philosophers would say that the, the whole identity of the government is having monopoly on the coercive means, on the means of violence, Weber said. Um, there's all sorts of ways in which the cyber domain challenges the control of states. This is as old as the internet itself. Um, in fact, that was sort of the philosophical attraction for so many people, right? So now you have um, a situation of, of warfare where the you would think, of course, the, the state parties involved control everything. But it's not so easy. It's not so simple because one of the features of the cyber domain is its accessibility. Mm -hmm. So on, on the Russian side, perhaps with great encouragement or even, even more than encouragement from authorities, but perhaps right. also in a self-generated sense, you, you've got a lot of talk so far, not a lot of action, but a lot of talk from, you know, especially some of the ransom. Some of the ransomware crews, right. Revil right. in particular, uh, having kind of hosed itself by getting out over its skis without accounting for the views of its Ukrainian right. uh, uh, crew members. But that's a whole other topic. So there's there's talk about these non-state actor entities uh, mm -hmm. perhaps 
going to bat for the Rodina. Uh, and then on the other side, you had Ukrainian authorities uh, urging whoever can get to their keyboard, <laughs> here's a list of Russian targets. Please go take unspecified disruptive actions against them. <laughs> so, uh, you know, were I giving, you know, legal counsel to uh, some American friend who wanted to do a little bit of hacking or other uh, fun stuff, targeting something on that list. Uh, the first thing I'd say is, you know, the, the Ukrainian government doesn't give you any authority to violate the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act in the United right. States. So don't right. do anything illegal right. from a U.S. perspective. Um, does that mean you'd be likely to be prosecuted if you did manage to pull off some mm -hmm. some sweet hack that went after <laughs> a, an appealing Russian target? Yeah. Uh, I don't know. That's prosecutorial discretion. Right. Uh, but most uh, people of sound judgment uh, don't commit illegal acts just trusting that, well, hopefully that won't turn out to be held against me or pursued at some point. That just seems unwise. Um, so the, the other interesting legal issue that's raised by that list, there's a lot of civilian stuff on that list that went out um, when, when it first got attention. Um, now, there is such thing. So let's back up. We have a situation of armed conflict. Right. The law of armed conflict applies. And that means uh, the principle of distinction between uh, at, at the human level, combatants and civilians, mm -hmm. and at the object level, uh, uh, things that are militarily useful and things that are civilian objects. Now, you've got dual use stuff. One mm -hmm. of the most interesting early cyber stories coming out of the war has been the attack on, on Viasat, the uh, the satellite uh, communications right. company. That. I'm, I'm no expert. I have no inside information on any of this, but just from some of the stuff I've read, I gather that there is at least some plausible reason to believe the Viasat communication links were important for some of the Ukrainian uh, drone capabilities, mm -hmm. which raises the, the distinct possibility that this is a dual use scenario where, okay. yes, it's a civilian system in some senses, but it has a military application. Um, and we don't need to get, get into the weeds about how you resolve that, but that doesn't, that makes it at least possible that that was a legitimate, um, from a principal distinction perspective, mm -hmm. a legitimate uh, use of military capabilities. What about all these civilian targets that the Ukrainian authorities encouraged um, the foreign legion of hackers to go right. after? Um, some of them might have that quality. My, my loose recollection is there were, there were also a lot of just you know, business, significant business targets, right. the sort of things that, that might be subject to sanctions to create pressure, but to actually carry out destructive, destructive actions against them um, raises more than just Computer Fraud and Abuse Act problems and needs to be thought of very carefully. If you're, if you're going to do it, if you're going to do some hacking on behalf of Ukraine, um, needless to say, I'm not objecting on moral grounds. I'm just flagging your legal <laughs> exposures because that's what we lawyers do. Now, if I were a Ukrainian citizen, though, I mean, I've got the authorities from my government, right? Right. So that, that starts to get interesting. Um, it, it obviously largely eliminates the practical concerns of what about local law enforcement right. prosecuting me for whatever right. the Ukrainian equivalent of the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act is. Right. Ob obviously, that's not going to be a problem. Um, it, nothing that any government can do can erase the fundamental line between civilian objects yeah. and military targets. And so you still need to be mindful. Uh, there, there's a question there about whether what you're doing would count as an attack in the law of war mm -hmm. sense, not in, the, not in the, the lazy way in the media we talk about, you know, computer network attack or something like that. 
but specifically, is it an armed attack of the kind that it obviously would be if you were blowing something up? Well, um, you just got to be careful there. There's a lot of debate about where, when computer network activity can count as an attack, right. including in this particular sense. If what you're achieving is the practical equivalent of, of destructive effects, then you're in the ballpark and you need to be concerned about this. If you're uh, if you're denying service, you know, if you're DDoSing something, I, I think that's less of a concern. Um, and obviously, if you're uh, just engaging in collection of information, if you're gaining access, but you're not destroying things or disrupting things, mm -hmm. that's less of an issue, less likely to count as an attack. Again, it's all hypothetical. Um, you always, like Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. once said, you know, the, the question is not so much what I'm paraphrasing here, not so much what the, the law is, but, you know, what are you likely to be held accountable for? Right. What's, the, what's the consequence going to be? So right. if, you're, if you're fighting for your life in your homeland in Ukraine right now, yeah. Th these concerns are so far down your list of things you need to be worried about that yeah. I, I wouldn't suggest to some Ukrainian that they need to, you know, back off because of these types of considerations. But again, if you're just asking what's the academic answer, these are the types of considerations you got to factor in. Yeah, no, that's a good point. I, I want to go back to the Viasat uh, comment, though, because we've been reading a lot about it lately. It's it's probably the most well-known attack coming out of this this conflict or war. Viasat's an American company, right? Yeah. So they ruined, I, I don't know how many thousands of, of modems in this attack. They, they definitely took some Ukrainian assets offline or capabilities. But our buddy Jags, Rachel, from Sentinel One, who put the report out last week, last week being, uh, I think, uh, you know, April 1st or yeah. so, the 31st of March, maybe, when they analyzed it, there were the uh, 5,800 wind turbines in, Ge in Germany were impacted, right? People oh. across the world who were using Viasat's capabilities were impacted by this acid yes. rain wiper. So it is, Bobby, one of the first attacks of the conflict we can attribute back to somebody related to the conflict, right? I, I, don't, I don't think anybody's done any attribution to Russia. I don't know that they ever will, Um but it's definitely a, a wiper that impacted Ukraine operations, but through an American company. And I, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, so that – I think you're right that there is a bit of a Rubicon crosser or a precedent setter there with respect to the geographic dispersion of what amounts to collateral damage. So let's assume for the sake of argument, let's let's put the best face on it from the – Russian perspective and assume that the, the uh, motivation for the attack was was based in military necessity and it had to do with disrupting command and control links that were militarily relevant. And so it was it was a legitimate object sort of in the abstract. Um, then there's there's questions about the the impact of the effect of the attack on pure civilian uses mm -hmm. and on enterprises and other systems located elsewhere, like the wind farms you mentioned. Um, Prior to the cyber domain being an operational realm, when you're talking about actions taking place in physical dom domains with kinetic systems, sure, of course, we've, we've always had spillover impacts. This is why we have the topic of proportionality and attack, where you have to balance the expected military uh, benefit against the anticipated civilian cost and, and weigh these imponderables about whether it's, it's all sufficiently justified. But one thing we never really had was a significant, uh, cr not just cross-border, but just cross-globe sort of spillovers 
at, at scales and distances um, that just you wouldn't even consider before. Maybe the closest you could get might be some notion. Like I think about Saddam, this isn't a great example, but Saddam during the Persian Gulf War, recall, set fire to the oil fields. And it had right. a As huge- As retreated. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and there, was a, there was a huge environmental degradation effect that, that spread pretty broadly and wasn't confined just to the local region. So you could kind of have scenarios like that in past conflicts. But here you've got um, presumably a, a militarily motivated use of a capability for destructive effect in theater that had significant, Eric, as you say, significant destructive spillover effects on entirely unrelated, purely civilian you know, incredibly distant systems right. elsewhere. So that raises, you know, the, the law is not designed to speak directly to that unique scenario. We're going to start thinking about that. Um, but to take a first pass at it, the, the first thing to note is, okay, so there's been a destructive effect in Germany. So this implicates the UN Charter and Germany's rights as a sovereign. And it's, um, it raises questions, for example, do you, should you analyze this as a use of force in international affairs? And, and as soon as you say that, you got to pause and say, okay, I, I don't know what the answer to that question is off the cuff. What I do know is that if we're going to talk about uses of force and violations of the UN Charter, Russia has engaged in the war crime, the, the Mac Daddy war crime of aggression against the Ukrainians to start with. Right. So it's 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 kind of almost only of minor academic interest at, at first blush to talk about the impacts on Germany as well of this mm-hmm. comparatively minor thing. It's got to be said. But again, you know, we're, we have the we have the privilege of sitting at this distance, thinking about it more abstractly. And, and part of what we can do to add value is to think about what are the broader implications. And I think it does matter um, that these some of these tools do, in fact, prove to have downstream impacts that are way removed from the battlefield. That's it's problematic. Now, the Russians famously historically have never cared about these collateral impacts. And you look at uh, some of what GRU is reported to have um, unleashed on this planet, billions of dollars of cost and impact. And right, like NotPetya and, 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 and on and on. Yeah, yeah. yeah. especially NotPetya is just mm-hmm. the most, you know, vastly worse than what's happened to the German wind farms here. Right. Um, in terms of its scale. But it, but all of it is, is a reminder of what everybody in the industry knows, which is that uh, some of these capabilities will not have confined effects. Other mm-hmm. ones are going to have ex- exquisitely and purposely uh, confined effects. But you've got actors out there, and the Russians are the, the leading example even before this, uh, actors who don't care a lot about the spillovers. If, they, if it will get them what they want as their main object, the spillovers are irrelevant. The legal considerations, clearly irrelevant to all of their operations, let alone this. This is this is nothing compared to the actual um, murders and, and rapes and other things that are now being reported. How would you think about it differently if they used kinetic weapons to take the the satellites out of the out of the sky? Yeah, that's uh, right? the intersection. Destroyed the some intersection modems. There is, we had physical damage. Yeah. This is something that the issue of space security is looming so large for us yes. now. Mm. It's got a direct cyber dimension, as this illustrates. Um, but there's there is the more permanent way of disrupting these systems. And we know that the Russians have capabilities. We know the Chinese have capabilities. Uh, both of them have endangered all space operations by testing and, and, and yeah. using these capabilities, creating clouds of incredibly dangerous space junk to add to our space junk problems. Um, it, it is 
easy to see that the future, when when the ball drops in a peer-to-peer competition, if and when we ever get to that point, um, it is not hard to imagine the rapid kinetic, the rapid deployment of kinetic capabilities in space from an anti-sat, anti-satellite uh, perspective, mm-hmm. alongside with attempts to achieve the same effects through cyber means. And, uh, you know, Space Force uh, is, I still kind of chuckle when I say that, Space Force <laughs> is, I, I believe, on task and, in, in you know, more aware than anybody that our, our constellations are ex- incredibly vulnerable. Yeah. Um, but it's one thing to recognize the problem. It's another thing to solve it. And when you talk about such incredibly physically fragile mechanisms, I think actually our chances of defending them from a cyber uh, attack seem much more plausible than defending them from a really motivated physical attack. Because at the end of the day, um, physical contact at a small scale, but high velocity is, is all it takes to take these uh, capabilities out. But you think there's a difference, right? We, we destroyed, so, so acid rain destroyed modems, which had to be replaced. Physical destruction there, preventing communications. But a, a physical attack on a satellite, that's a, that's a line, a different line to cross. I think you're putting your finger on something really important, which is that the, well, let's back up. What are we talking about? We're talking about whether and when a government, let's say the United States, would treat something as a, either a policy or a legal red line, perhaps mm-hmm. both, that would trigger some, if not outright intervention of, you know, full-scale intervention in the war, some leveling up to a level of support or, or engagement in the conflict that's beyond what we're currently doing, which we're already doing quite a bit, mm-hmm. but we could do more. Um, from a legal perspective, we can talk about it. Does it count as an armed attack against the state, a use of force? And, and in all these settings, whether we're talking about the political slash policy analysis, or if we're talking about the, the abstract legal analysis, I find that most people have an intuition that something about the kinetic realm makes it easier to say yes. I think more it's likely tangible, to say yes. right? It's, it's you yeah, can feel it. Just, it. it yeah, right. yeah it, it just even if the effects are identical in terms of the the functional practicality, it's the it's the visibility, as you say, the tangibility. Maybe it's just human nature, but we, we tend to weight that more because that's that's how we've always defined that sort of attack and that sort of trigger. So physical destruction, yes, is more likely to lead whoever the relevant decision maker to say, okay, that red line's been crossed. Okay. But that doesn't mean that it has to be physical. And if the practical effects achieved through cyber means with no physical, no visible physical damage, um, nonetheless are sufficient, um, that, ought, that ought to at least create the possibility. But at the end of the day, it's always a judgment. You think about mm-hmm. the Iranians after Stuxnet. Um, reportedly, uh, the United States and Israel achieved really, really remarkable physical effects through cyber means. Um could they have loudly announced this categorization, that line cross, that line cross? Right. Uh, plausibly, sure. But does that mean it would be wise to do so? No, probably not. And that's obviously the judgment they made. They decided to proceed in quieter ways in response to that. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Well, it does, it kind of opens up this this whole window though, right? I mean, it the cyber realm, I mean, it's, we're, we're kind of um, peeling back this onion, right? More and more day by day, year by year. I mean, how, from a legal standpoint, how do we ever get a handle on this are thing? You, are you talking international cyber policy that people adhere to, Rachel? 
Well, I mean, sure, among other things, yes. Well, the first thing you got to say about this is you, you have to be realistic in assessing what the international law and the international norms frameworks, right. both now and in the future, would really mean for the United States versus what they'd really mean for Moscow and what they'd really mean for Beijing. Mm -hmm. And I will not be persuaded that they mean the same things across these different capitals, um, which is does not mean that therefore the United States and, and NATO countries and Five Eyes, allies, et cetera, doesn't mean that we should therefore not want there to be rules of the road. We do want right. there to be rules of the road. It'd be, but we need to be clear-eyed and honest about what those rules of the road are going to mean mm -hmm. for us. They will be constraining to some extent for us. Right. They will not be constraining for Beijing and Moscow. So right. that that's a starting point. Um, related to that, uh, there's been a, a generation's worth of debate about trying to create um, if not international law, at least international normative principles, mm -hmm. not law is the key sure. phrase there, not law, but, but things that people say really ought to matter. Mm -hmm. um, there's been a ton of debate and a ton of process trying to get to some precise uh, point that would, for example, perhaps say that you shouldn't put implants into the grid or you shouldn't put implants into the financial system, let alone take these systems down or the water mm -hmm. system. Um, the, the nations involved in this process got pretty far as long as the level of generality was pretty high. Right. But as soon as it got down to brass tacks, divergent national interests emerged and, mm -hmm. and no agreement was reached. And that wasn't right. to create a treaty that actually had the force of law. That was just to identify norms people could agree with. Mm -hmm. Um, so that those efforts continue. Uh, the United States is leading one effort at the UN. The Russians are leading a very different one with, mm -hmm. with uh, all the authoritarians sort of in their corner mm -hmm. on that. Um, I don't. I think it's it's great to keep that conversation going. We should we should hope for it, but I'm, but we should be realistic. Right. I do think it's valuable for rule of law nations mm -hmm. of, of of wherever they might be, whether they're military allies or not. Those nations that do believe in uh, the rule of law and the growth of space for online commerce and, right. and, and all the good things um, to try to form the agreements that they can. And so that sort of dialogue, the dialogue of the willing, that I think is a more promising space. Yeah. Uh, but just note that all this stuff is talking about separate from warfare. With warfare, we've got the laws of war. They're not written in domain-specific ways for right. the most part. Yeah, there's some of that, but but the principles of distinction, proportionality, and all the rest, um, they're there for use in this setting. And um, so I wouldn't want listeners to think that the in an armed conflict setting, like we just have no rules and we've got to get some rules. What we don't have are, are peacetime rules, and we've got all this gray zone activity, all this uh, below the threshold of armed conflict activity that's been going on for a generation where, where nations mess with each other, sometimes in pretty harmful ways, and especially engage in a lot of pre-positioning of implants so they can hold each other's vital right. systems at risk. And that is a scary world to be in. It's interesting. Last, last week, and I don't know what order the recordings will come out in, but we had Michael Daniel on the show um, from the Cyber Threat Alliance. And we were, we were kind of equating, if, if you remember, Rachel, we were, we were kind of equating the laws of the sea to how laws of cyber need to mature and form over time. You know, we had hundreds of years in, on the laws of the sea, though. 
Bobby, I'm not suspect. I'm not suggesting you're a maritime expert, but would, would you agree <laughs> with that parallel? Or eh, maybe, maybe not. Because we have to trade a openly. Bit. A little bit because it's a commons. So space, sea, undersea, um, cyber, you know, high atmosphere. Yeah, you've you've got you've got all these these places where human beings can cause effects that are uh, in some senses. Always with caveats, especially with cyber, in some sense is not national territory. Now, again, that actually is maybe where the cyber uh, analogy breaks down a little bit because the infrastructure somewhere. I mean, yeah, yeah, sure. The pipes are we've got pipes under the sea, the wires and such. Um, and some of it's bouncing up to the satellites and down again. But the satellites themselves are national vessels, national right. properties. And, and the servers are by and large all sitting on someone's territory. So, so there is a geography to it. it mm-hmm. People tend to overlook it, but people in industry understand there's geography to this and there's real sovereign concerns all over the map with it. I guess what I come back to is this. Um, when it comes to developing international law, um, you know, one lesson from the law of the sea example is you, you can, with enough effort and enough goodwill, you can craft rules that help all of us be better off. Right. But also witness China and its unhelpful approach to the law of the sea rooted in its perception of its national interest. In all things international law, the nations pursue their national interests. Whatever they're saying, they pursue their national interests. And that suggests that when the national interests don't seem to align on what the rules of the road ought to be, then you have to have modest expectations about how much the legal framework is going to say otherwise. Okay. I, I think that's very fair. I, I, I do think the law has to mature, but I, I'm with you. I mean, each nation will take advantage of it to the extent possible in their self-interest, in their best interest. Although I don't know that that wasn't the case back when we were putting down international law and in you know, see if the, if the uh, United Kingdom had the biggest Navy, they probably had a pretty big voice compared to, uh, you know, Congo or someone else. I guess it connects up to this question of uh, what is it that the people who are in the best position to influence things, what is it they're trying to accomplish? Now, we have a we have this multipolar world now uh, in which China has tremendous capabilities, a tremendous part of, of uh, what could happen is not going to happen if they are not seeing a national interest in it. Um, the, the Russians are sort of a more of a spoiler player. They, they shouldn't have the voice that they do, but they've always played their hand to an outsized degree and punched above their weight. And they're, they, we're, we're seeing the limits of that now, thank God, mm-hmm. finally. Um, it could be that one long-term consequence, when I mean, who knows what's going to happen with mm-hmm. Ukraine, but you know, if you're an optimist, you hope you see the beginnings of real cracks in the edifice, maybe even the ultimate demise of the Putin crime family. Uh, if and when that demise occurs and is it too much to hope that maybe at some point we see Russia swing back into a, uh, uh, a constructive participant in world affairs? That, that would be awfully nice. Mm-hmm. Uh, it would certainly be meaningful for the ransomware problem were that to happen. Mm-hmm. That's, that's a lot of ifs between here and there. Um, <laughs> it's kind of calling for another 1989 through 1991 sort of period of, of sudden blossoming of good things, but it would really help. And in that world, Perhaps that would uh, oblige China to a certain extent to be more cooperative. Um, but China in the past 
handful of years has has been so much more assertive, so much more disregarding of the interest of other nations mm-hmm. that it makes one pessimistic that they're going to come around on this and that we're going to get major cyber powers, uh, not just agreeing to the articulation of rules of the road, but actually obeying them. Yeah. It's very complicated. <laughs> <laughs> Depressing. This, all this all that I wait for that, Rachel? <laughs> of course it's complicated. Well, you know, it, it, weird segue, maybe or not, but um, there's such a long road ahead of us. And we talk a lot about, you know, the cyber skills shortage here. And, uh, you know, what it, I, I was really, uh, really excited to see, you know, the UT School of Law, I guess, and your inter- interdisciplinary uh, role here for a cyber expert. I would love for you to talk a little bit more about that because we need more cyber curriculum if we're going to start tackling these these huge problems. hundred percent. So, I mean, I think everybody understands, certainly anybody who's listening to the show understands that we have a workforce challenge. Everybody does. This is an old story. You don't need me to repeat it. But we usually talk about that in terms of applied cybersecurity and let's get in, we need more fingers on the keyboards. All true. Um, but there's, if we look to a different part of the organizations, all of them, government, non, non-governmental, business, et cetera, one of the most recurring challenges you tend to hear about is the lack of mutual understanding across the relevant disciplines. you got lawyers who don't understand the technology. You have CISOs who might not understand the political context. You have right. political leadership who don't understand the business functions. You have business leaders who don't understand the law. It's it's all around the horn, and there, mm-hmm. there are a bunch of other disciplines we could throw into the mix as well. But, but to simplify things, the business, regulatory, technical, and legal frameworks, uh, all of them, the whole system would work so much better if we could level up systematically across society, mutual understanding of what the other disciplines yes. are bringing to the table with respect to cyber, right? Uh, so when when so UT Austin, which has long had a world class computer science department, we don't lack for we've never lacked for um, advanced research and top end right. students graduating uh, that, that can touch on security issues. Um, but many years ago, when we sat around thinking about how can we here in Austin add to the larger set of things happening in the Austin and San Antonio area with cybersecurity, where this has become right. quite the hub. Um, what could we do that might be additional and, and and not unique, but but a little bit different? And what we decided was missing was just that, the interdisciplinary or cross-disciplinary training. Mm-hmm. And we set out to build a program that begins with a uh, sort of a broad survey course that takes the question like, hey, cybersecurity, great topic. What does that mean again? Right. Not as a technical matter, but as a field of policy mm-hmm. and regulation and business. So we have an introductory survey course and then a whole slew of additional courses. Some are about risk management and how businesses think about these things, how incident response works. Some of it's, you know, we have one of the world's leading experts on the law of war as it plays out in cyberspace. Mm -hmm. We have a lot of stuff because of my own interest and involvements. We have stuff that's all about CISA. Some of it's all about cyber command. And, And the goal 
ultimately is to ensure that any computer science or engineer or other technical student who wants to have some exposure to this has really bespoke, made-for-this-purpose training opportunities. Wonderful. And likewise, that the, the kids graduating from uh, Texas Law or from the LBJ School of Public Affairs who, who might be in government at some point working on these issues – have actually had some technical training. We even have a, uh, a course. I avoided the temptation to call it uh, Technology for Dummies because I don't want to insult myself. Uh, but it's a course for law students and public affairs students and business students who are, you can't, you know, drop them into a computer science classroom. Right. These are people who um, may have no grounding whatsoever in coding. Um, but it's nonetheless a semester-long, purely technical introduction to build some flu – not fluency, but some familiarity. Um, and so we think the combination of these things really does help to address the problem. And we actually have a, a model of trying to put the fruits of all this out there where anyone can use them for free. So mm -hmm. the casebook I wrote that's a big introduction to law and policy – relating to cyber, uh, it's free rather than having it published mm -hmm. and trying to make some money off of it. It's just a PDF. Anybody can download it. You can find it by searching Bobby Chesney cybersecurity book. You'll, that'll probably find it. I, actually, I'll <laughs> run a test here as we're talking to see if that works. But uh, the goal is to try to just put these tools out there where everyone can benefit from them. And I think that now there's a lot of universities around the country that do some similar things. This will help us a lot. It's going to take time for the fruit to be born, sure. but it'll be useful for the country when it happens. Bobby, when you bring students in, and I'm assuming you bring them in at both the undergrad and the graduate level, correct? Yes. Uh, so these programs I just described, right now we built it out for the grad Gra students. Most, okay. So you bring in students who, have, who, who tend to have at least some work experience in one of the disciplines I'm betting, not across disciplines. You, you get all kinds. Right. So what, what Sometimes kind of you get ones who've done it, but some who have nothing at all by way of background. No kidding. Okay. And so what kind of feedback do you get then mm. if you bring in somebody with a deep technical experience versus more of a legal perspective or, or somebody who just graduated UT Austin undergrad in you know, whatever, public policy yeah. degree or something, and then they're like, I'm going, uh, you know, I'm going to this course. So part of what's going on is that there is a there is a strong message that's penetrated the minds of many students from different backgrounds yeah. that this is part of the future, yeah. that this is a great employment pathway, and that it's, it's a cool and interesting and worthy sort of place to work. You know, there's this uh, there's this concept. This book was real popular a few years ago by Hector uh, uh, Garcia and and, uh, and Morales. These these two people wrote a book about the Japanese concept of ikigai. Have you guys heard of this? Yep. So you got a picture of a Venn diagram where one circle is something you can get paid to do. One circle is something you're good at. One circle is something that brings you joy. And one circle is something society needs. And you need to try to be at the intersection right. where you get paid to do something you're good at, that you enjoy, that actually matters in the world. I think a lot of students sort of look at the challenges of the cyber domain and especially the security aspects and the privacy aspects of it. And you think, man, that sounds fun. This is exciting. And it actually matters. Right. At a time when finding stuff that really matters, that doesn't have some horrible dark side to it, uh, insert social media, uh, it, it seems like there's a hunger for this. And I think I think cyber is going to continue to draw people in. Um, and, and I think it's a great sign that this is moving beyond computer science and engineering, that it's Absolutely. happening with other disciplines now, too. We, we don't have as many episodes as you do with your your podcast. Uh, but one of the things I'm picking up, by the way, that's the uh, 
the National Security Law Podcast. It is a fun show. I, 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 my, uh, yeah, I loved listening to it in preparation for the show here, but you know, I'm trying to think where I was going with that now. But actually, <laughs> I got it right. No, I, 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 got it right. <laughs> I was brilliant. Kind of well, no, it's a great show. But one of the well, things. Let me just say about it real quick that it, someone once said, yeah, remember Car Talk on NPR? Yeah, Click I loved Car Talk. Oh, yeah. Yes. Someone said, like, listening to you and Steve Vladek arguing about, because it's sort of a he said, she said That's yeah. perspective yeah. on things debate show. They said, it's like car talk because you laugh uproariously at stuff that's not that funny you guys think you're so funny that's a great way to look true. at your show we're not talking about alternators or tires that are falling apart exactly. as you're driving down the road but, <laughs> but law matters uh, but 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 seriously one of the things in the hundred and whatever we're at uh, 70 episodes or so that we've done that's really rounded my education out through the podcast Rachel mm -hmm. is the interconnectedness of all of these disciplines Yes. It's not just a technical issue. You can't mm -hmm. just have the cyber team or the IT team do their jobs and do them well and everything's going to be okay. And part of yeah. it's the lack of the, the lack of headcount, right? The 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 shortage in personnel in the industry, the the legacy laws, the financial components, you name mm -hmm. it, the advantages all the attackers have. But but that's really I, – I feel like we've learned a lot. At least I have. I won't speak for you, Rachel. It's more than tech. If I could sum up what we've learned on this show over those episodes, it's a heck of a lot more than tech, Bobby. And it's nice to it, see a school bring it together. Yeah. It, it is more than tech. It's it's a societal challenge. Like it's You can say something similar if we did this whole show, if this whole series was about the information challenges of social media and living in, living in our current times. It's more than tech. These are, these are both kind of related manifestations of the nature of our tech-focused society. You have technical problems, but you can't solve them in purely technical means because they're, they're also cultural problems. They're behavioral problems. Yes. We all understand that you know, the ultimate vulnerability that will never be fully patched is us right. because right. The human. we're human beings with our foibles. Yeah. So uh, the, the – as, as our economy and as our lives have become ever more wired or wireless, uh, it was inevitable that the conversation on security and the reality, the practical reality of security would begin to track around these subjects. And if, if these were physical topics, we were physical activities we were talking about, we would understand that you have to bring all these different disciplines to bear. Cyber is no different. I think that's yeah. a great way to end the show here. It is, and it's exciting, though. It makes me very excited for the future. So, Lots of opportunity, Rachel. Bobby, are you click or clack? <laughs> oh, that's such a good question. <laughs> um, I'll let Steve Vladek decide that, which one he, he thinks I am. Um, yeah, let me know on the next show. I will, I will listen. We will ponder that. We will ponder that. Oh, thanks okay. for the time today. Absolutely, Bobby. Thank you. This is Thank wonderful. you for having me on the show. Thanks, everybody. Rachel, awesome. take us home. All right, everyone. Once again, an amazing podcast episode. Thank you so much for joining us this week. And here, let me do my drum roll. And don't forget to hit that subscription button, guys. Every Tuesday, fresh episode right to your inbox. Uh, until next time, guys, be safe. Thanks for joining us on the To The Point Cybersecurity Podcast, brought to you by Forcepoint. 
For more information and show notes from today's episode, please visit www.forcepoint.com slash govpodcast. And don't forget to subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts. 